Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in. Our guest today is Daniel Lurch, and he is with the Post Carbon Institute. They have recently put out a publication that I really encourage all of you to get a hold of. It's called the Community Resilience Reader. And while we talk a lot on this show about climate change, the impacts of climate change, and what we're all likely to experience if we are fortunate enough to live long enough to experience those changes. Um, You know, we talk a lot about the, you know, public policy and action at the international or national level. Well, we all know that if we experience climate change, a lot of it's going to be felt right in our own neighborhoods. And this Community Resilience Reader gives us a great guide for ways of thinking about how to make our neighborhoods, our cities, you know, our communities just right around our homes more resilient in the face of the many challenges. Besides climate change, there are other challenges of the 21st century. And I'm so excited to have Daniel come on the show today to talk with us about that. Welcome to the to Go Green Radio, Daniel. We're glad to have you on the show. Thanks, Jill. I'm very glad to be here. Well, let's begin by having you give us an overview of the Community Resilience Reader. What's the intended audience for this publication, and what will this publication enable its readers to do? Well, as with all of the, the publications and products that we produce at Post Carbon Institute, uh, we tend to think of our audience, our main audience, as what we call the walking worried. And that's essentially people who already kind of understand that things are not quite right in the world. They get the basics of climate change. They understand that we can't be running on fossil fuels forever. But maybe they want to know more. Maybe they're 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 concerned about it, but they don't have time to go out and get a doctorate degree in these issues or, you know, go to more than a couple marches, that sort of thing. So we, when we target those people, because we, we feel that um, to create really significant and long-term social and policy change, you've got to get um, kind of the, the bridge between the people who are kind of the, the, the experts, they're really deep, deeply committed, people actively working on things, people in, in the organizations and whatnot, bridge them over to the folks who really aren't getting it, uh, the people who, you know, just the regular voters, the voters, mm-hmm. the mass of people. And the bridge of those people is going to be the walking worried uh, because they're the people that can talk to their their aunts and uncles and nephews and nieces and coworkers or whatnot, um, and and get them to, to to think more about these things. You know, the the, the mass of people are they're not gonna they're they're not gonna listen to you know four hours of a dissertation on, on climate change or the end of fossil fuels uh, as much as we might like them to. So the the, the point of this particular book was to kind of get that audience of the walking worried, thinking beyond the usual frame of climate change. As, as you mentioned in your introduction, um, you know, climate change is the, the big thing that we're all worried about, but there are a lot of other challenges and crises out there that we need to think of, too. And um, over the last few years, especially since Superstorm Sandy in 2012, this idea of resilience has really come to the fore. And there's there's been some misunderstanding about it. There, there's been some different interpretations of it, our take on it and the take of, you know, other organizations and folks who think like us um, is that, you know, resilience is 
kind of the, the thing that we need to be aiming for, perhaps more so than just straight sustainability. Sustainability, as we've thought about it for decades, you know, you, you think about sustainability, you think about changing your light bulbs, maybe buying an electric car. It's all about these these outcomes, these these goals that we're trying to achieve. Whereas resilience is more about the process of getting the systems that we depend upon to be able to handle different kinds of disruptions, handle different kinds of changes without losing their essential character. Um, and the, I think the, the way that this applies to communities should be pretty self-evident. I mean, you tend to think of, when we think about resilience, we often, people often think of, say, the hurricane coming up the coast and, you know, it hits the city and a lot of buildings are destroyed and a lot of lives are impacted, but the city bounces back and it comes back you know, stronger and better than it was before. That's a form of resilience. That's kind of a, a, a very simplified form of resilience. Um, but it kind of gets to the basic point that, you know, a, a city that's really resilient, it's got some, some characteristics that enable it to handle some sort of disruption and, and retain what it was before and not just get, become completely destroyed or, or have its character um, completely changed. So resilience is all about figuring out what those characteristics are and what are the things that we can do as community members um, to enhance those characteristics? Well, and I love what you said there, Daniel, because it's the difference between a community that's reactive in its resilience, you know, will bounce back after a storm, and a community that's proactively thinking about how can we remain strong throughout you know, the things that we can foreseeably uh, expect to experience. And that's what this reader, for me at least, as I was reading it, helped me to think about in terms of, you know, what can I and my neighbors and my local city officials do to pre-plan and 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 bounce forward, I believe, as you said, instead of just bouncing back, bounce forward and, and um you know, really being ready for these things and not just able to react. At the Post Carbon Institute, um, you identify the problems we face and you call it the E4 crisis, ecological, energy, economic, and equity. And I'd love for you to take a few moments to give us an overview of each of these crises and how each one can impact either positively or negatively a community's resilience. Absolutely. Yeah, and this this really gets to the the, the the whole point of the book that we you know we, it's not just about telling people oh resilience is this thing you need to go for, but what are the what are the reasons why we need to think about resilience and namely these these crises? What's the context that we're facing? What are the tools that we need to work with those uh, work with those contexts and those new challenges? And then what are some of the examples of ways that communities are already working on this? Those are kind of the three points of the book, the three parts of the book, I should say. So this first part is about the, we, we lay out the, the, the crises. Um, and, you know, a lot of people may think, well, good Lord, we already know all about the environmental crises and, and the economic crises. Do we really need to go over that all again? And we had some feedback on, on some, some early thinking about the book that said exactly that. And, you know, our response, and this is why we did it this way in the book, was to say, well, you know, there's different ways of thinking about crisis. Kind of like we alluded to a little bit earlier, people they may think of environmental crisis, they may, they may immediately think to climate change and really nothing else. Or they may think to energy crisis, and they immediately go to the need to transition to renewable energy and nothing else. And in fact, there's a lot of, any one of these crises is a huge set of challenges. Um, and it becomes a very, these are all very complex systems problems. So we kind of came up with these, what we call the, as you said, the E4 crises as a way of kind of focusing our attention on 
and, and organizing these challenges and, into what we felt were the, kind of the, the four um, most important ways, of, the, the four most important sets of challenges that are really threatening modern human civilization, mm-hmm. to put it rather bluntly. Um, you know, there's a lot of challenges that we're simply not uh, including among those crises because we, there's, there, there's, some, there's some big things we need to deal with. Deal with. The big four, uh, as, you, as you laid out there, so the first one is the environmental crises. And that's, I guess the quick explanation of that is just the idea that ecosystems around the world are being pushed near or past their limits. Um, this, is, this is all about the, the limits to growth, um, planetary boundaries concepts from over the previous 40 years or so. Climate change is absolutely a part of that. Climate change is what you get when you push the global... Um, the, the global atmosphere, the global uh, carbon cycle, beyond what it's n- normally able to handle by pumping in all this extra carbon into the atmosphere from burning fossil fuels. So that's one example of the system being pushed past its limit. Other systems that are being pushed past their limits are, for example, uh, the freshwater cycle. Um, we have a, there's a major freshwater crisis in many parts of the world because we're we're drawing on uh, groundwater aqu- aquifers far too much because of industrialized agriculture. Um, you know, there are other issues. Uh, Topsoil is being depleted at, at too fast a rate, on and on and on. And let's not even get into biodiversity. Mm, so that's right. so all those things, we, we need to keep those in mind and not just think about climate change, although climate change, of course, is kind of the, the biggest and baddest, as it were. <laughs> the second E4 crisis, the energy crisis, um, again, it's not just about we're, we're, we need to shift from fossil fuels to renewable energy, but it's recognizing that we're now in this age of uh, what we call the, the, the age of extreme energy. That we're not, it's, you know, we're still dependent on fossil fuels and we need to get off them, but the fossil fuels that we're extracting now are far more damaging than what they were, say, 50 years ago. We're not just drilling, poking holes in the, the plains in Texas anymore, that we're, we're still doing that, you know. We we're, we're drilling in deep water in the Gulf of Mexico, and we're uh, drilling holes in prime farmland and just outside national monuments because, you know, as Richard Heinberg often says, the easy oil is gone. Mm-hmm. The flip side of that crisis is that the transition to renewable energy is going to be extremely difficult. We're not just going to all be driving Teslas in the next 10 years. It just doesn't work right. that way. You have a major um, global industrial system that needs to transition. And then finally, really quick, the last two e-crises, e- the economic crisis, um, that's about the end, that we've hit the end of 20th century style economic growth, which is growth based on overconsumption, and there's really not yet the, the next system in place. So there are a lot, of, a lot of challenges related to that. And then finally, the fourth E uh, is the equity crisis. And I think one way I like to think about that is that it's really about the, gro- the broken promises of globalization, that we've been promised, you know, rising tide lifting all boats, that free trade was going to, you know, bring wealth and prosperity to everyone, and that simply hasn't been the case. And then you get that together with the first three e crises combining, and it, it, you end up having the, the non wealthy of the planet being hurt absolutely the hardest. And that's kind of the core of the equity crisis. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that you all put those together because, frankly, um, if this book is going to be useful to community members, community leaders, um, it really wouldn't do any good to have yet another book that's on one siloed issue. Putting them all together, I think, is the most helpful way to help communities actually 
use this as a as a map, as a useful tool to consider all the various ways that they need to you know, shore up their resilience. So I'm glad that you guys did that, um, despite early feedback saying, why do we need another, you know, book saying, you know, what we already know. I think that was very helpful. Um, you know, for a long time, the focus of a lot of environmental uh, movements and initiatives and, and groups has been to influence national public policy. And yet this publication starts to urge us towards action at the community level. And I'd like for you to spend just a a moment talking about why this shift is so important. There's many reasons for that. Um, One reason is that there's already, at Post Carbon, we we tend to look to where are the issues in the areas that aren't getting a lot of attention that need attention. And let's put the spotlight on that. So as you said, local local level action, there's a long, long tradition in environmentalist and progressive circles of, of local level action, but it tends to be the national action that gets the, the, the spotlight, as you said. So we, we decided to work on that. Um, certainly within the United States system, there is a, an incredible amount of uh, work that can be done at the local level that actually has impact. Land use planning, transportation planning, investments in transportation, investments in uh, energy systems, things like recycling systems, things like um, community gardens and farmland preservation, so many things that affect sustainability and ultimately the resilience of communities um, are, are, are determined by policies that happen at the local level, whether it's mm-hmm. you know, municipality or county or, or state. It's the way the American system is set up. Any, any power that was, is not um, given to the federal government in the Constitution is, is automatically devolved down to the states. So it's one of the, one of the great... Um, balances and, and really strengths of, of our system. So that, in that sense, uh, it makes a lot of sense um, to be working on these things at the local level. It would be very different in a, in a totalitarian it, uh, it would. And we see that even in China, although they have some efficiencies by setting these national goals and, and bringing those down to the, the local level. But I agree with you. That is one of the strengths of our of our system. We've got to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, we have so much more to go over with Daniel. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. 
Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. And if you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Daniel Lurch. He's with the Post Carbon Institute. That's postcarbon.org if you want to check them out. Um, and he is the editor of a of a new publication that's come out fairly recently from Post Carbon Institute. It's called The Community Resilience Reader, Essential Resources for an Era of Upheaval. And right before we went to break, uh, Daniel was discussing this shift in focus of, you know, kind of really hyper-focusing on international and national policy and maybe starting to focus more of our in- you know, our, our interest and our attention on environmental public policy at the local level. And I think you had some more that you wanted to talk to us about that issue. Daniel, go ahead. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, so I, I started by saying that it's it makes sense in the U.S. system to, to do work at the local level, in part just because of how things are structured with, with the government, that there's, there's so much power at the local level. But an, another reason is that uh, when it comes to this question of building community resilience, and we'll probably, I think we'll get to this later on in the conversation, but um, kind of the, the, the crux of resilience in a system is um, finding ways to maintain the identity, the essence, uh, the essential things of that system, despite disruption. Um, you know, uh, um, maybe a common example in resilience science is um, rural communities where uh, maybe there's a farming community and they, they have a major drought that comes in and the community, if they want to be resilient, they've got to figure out, well, what are the things that are important to them about the community? What are the values that they all share? You know, why are they there? Um, and that, that becomes the core around which uh, they, they figure out how to build their resilience, you know, whether they're going to, say, come back and after the drought and continue farming the same crop or maybe do something completely differently, but it still retains their values and um, you know, enables people to actually stay there. Um, it's, it's, it's a lot to get into in just a kind of a 30-second soundbite. But kind of the point of that when it comes to local level um, action is that those are figuring out what those values are, coming to uh, agreement among the community about what those values are. Those things have to happen at the local level. If, if it's being determined by some higher level authority, it's not really community resilience. It's only the people who live in a community and who are invested in the community, you know, emotionally invested, not necessarily just economic, who, um, you know, it's, it's almost a moral question. Who, who gets to decide what this community is going to be and how it's going to persist through the future? So we, we talk about this quite a bit in the book, and it's really, um, I think that the next thing we, 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 you and I talked about uh, discussing on the program here was the 
kind of the found the the uh, theoretical foundation of of what we talk about in the book, which is called the six foundations of building community resilience. And the very first uh, foundation of those six is people, for that very reason. That community resilience has to start with the people who live in the community. Well, and I agree with you. And it's funny. I, I think about my own town. I live in a town in the East Bay area of Northern California. And there was a point where the community realized that we really didn't have enough water um, to keep building. And so the the community voted to put a halt on new building, but we were sued by the state of California and required mm-hmm. to build more buildings and to require to put in more housing, high density housing, no less, um, which then stretched our, our water use um, even more. And then the state not long after went into drought and we got less water than we had even for the population that we originally served. So sometimes that local control oh. is possible and sometimes it's not. And in fact, the attorney general who sued our, our city uh, became our governor. So, you know, oh, uh-huh. it, it's tough. It, the, these are tough issues. And uh, so to the extent that people pay attention and get involved, it can really make a difference. A lot of people in our town didn't get involved until uh, the lawsuit was already settled. And then, you know, we had no recourse. So it's it's really, it, it's a really interesting issue. Now, People's the first of, of the six foundations that you uh, outline in the Community Resilience Reader. Talk to us about the other five foundations that are so important for building community resilience. Well, and actually, let me say a little bit more about people. I think with that example that you gave is a perfect example of, of just how challenging um, this resilience question can be when you're talking about, well, when you're talking about people and decision-making. Um, you know, when you're dealing with, I mean, again, for, from, an, from an equity standpoint and also from an effectiveness standpoint, um, I can imagine, say, in, in a situation like you described there, you know, it's the people at the local level, they're the ones that have the local knowledge, the local history, you know, they may, are presumably much more informed and aware, for example, of the, the local and regional water sources and some bureaucrats up in, in Sacramento. Um, mm-hmm. So their voice is extremely important. At the same time, there's, it's also important to have all voices in a community um, mm-hmm. represented, you know, including people who don't always you know, come to the town council meetings. You know, so perhaps in, in that situation, perhaps there were people who would have benefited from you know, different kinds of housing. And so you've got to get those people at the table, and then you've got to mm-hmm. get the experts in from the higher levels of the table. And then it all, it all needs to, they all need to sit down and talk with each other and figure out what's going to work best for everybody, given the identity that the people who actually live there ultimately want. And I think when mm-hmm. things break down, we start having these uh, intergovernmental fights and people at the local level are really upset with what's happening is kind of as you described, when higher levels just kind of come in and take over and, and force a, uh, a solution onto everyone. And that, that doesn't really serve anyone. And that, in some ways, it gets to the second foundation, the second foundation uh, of the six foundations for building community resilience is systems thinking. And that's to kind of reinforce that, you know, when we say that these are systems problems, it's to highlight that, you know, all these things are interconnected. Um, water is, the water resources are connected to um, the, the, the housing situation, it's connected to the, the climate situation, it's connected to government policies at different levels. Uh, the local levels connected to the national and the, and the, and the global, that you, know, you always have to be thinking about these things. And I, 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 I 
I probably sh- shouldn't weigh into this much more, but I, I kind of suspect that maybe at the state level, they were looking at just one system. Well, we've got we need affordable housing built. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you just do that and you don't look at other systems, you end up with the challenge that they create. So the systems thinking is, is absolutely essential. and uh, Agreed, because, in- <laughs> yeah, when, when public policymakers, and I remember I was in the Navy and we used to have this, you know, this kind of full speed ahead motto of damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. You know, I mean, it was just kind of like charge forward without, you know, without abandon. And that is what oftentimes some of these, you know, public policy makers do. And again, when they're not thinking through the interconnectedness of these various systems, it can be a real mess. So continue, Daniel, but I I vehemently agree. (laughs) (laughs) And another, let me say quickly about systems thinking. One of the things I love about systems thinking is that it kind of expands your awareness to this kind of impossibly large um, view where you're looking at everything and it's kind of overwhelming. Um, But then it gives you these tools uh, of of dealing with that. And one of the tools of that is that you draw a boundary. You you accept that you can't deal with everything, that you can't analyze everything. You don't have perfect information. So we have to draw a boundary around the things that we care about and focus on that. And just that process of defining that boundary. And in the case of community, um, you know, that that, that boundary can be, you know, obviously this is important and probably a fairly straightforward thing for everyone to agree on that has an incredible focusing effect. And it gets it kind of re, resets the conversation from just one issue to, well, actually, no, we're talking about this place. We're talking about these functions together. Mm-hmm. So the third foundation of the six foundations to build community resilience that we came up with is adaptability. And that kind of gets to kind of conventional resilience science, just the idea that, as I mentioned earlier, there are certain characteristics within a system that allow a system to adapt to changing conditions, uh, to adapt to disruption. Um, to go back to the kind of typical flooding example, um, you know, a, a community that maybe is prepared for some adaptations is adapting to rising sea levels. You know, maybe they, they pass some legislation that requires all new housing uh, within 200 feet of the coast to be you know, raised up five feet or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. That's a pretty straightforward adaptive measure. And there's, there's much better examples we can get to if we had more time. Um, the fourth foundation is related to that in some ways. The fourth foundation is called transformability. That's another, that also comes out of resilient science, but it's, a, it's an aspect that is often overlooked. Transformability is the idea that as part of <coughs> thinking about what your system is threatened by and how it could change in the future, um, part of your preparation has to include the possibility that maybe you need to change the system entirely. Um, an example I like to use for that is the, um, the Rust Belt cities, um, especially those that were very, uh, very focused on the automotive industry. Uh, perhaps 50 years ago, you can imagine some city in Michigan, you know, what they do is they, they provide parts and labor for the automotive industry. That is their identity. But then there comes a day when the, the, the car manufacturing plants close down and, and go overseas. That city, that community has to transform. They can, you can't adapt to that anymore because it's, mm-hmm. the, the change is too big. You've got to find a way to transform. And, you know, either you're prepared for it and you can navigate it or you don't. And if you don't transform, then you get what happens at a lot of places and the community basically dies. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone, everyone who can leaves. So that's, that, that's an example of a non-resilient system. And then, okay, really quick, the, uh, the last two foundations Number five is sustainability, which surprises a lot of people that we put sustainability as in, and it's a foundation for resilience because some people seem to think that resilience and sustainability are, are, are conf- conflicting concepts, either conflicting or the same thing. 
um, people have very, very different <laughs> ideas about resilience. Yep. But we include it in there because we like we, we want to push this idea that sustainability and resilience are complementary concepts, but they're different. As I mentioned, I think earlier in the show, um, well, a way of thinking about it, and Charles Redmond from Arizona State University uh, coined this, said sustainability prioritizes outcomes, but resilience prioritizes processes. So you kind of need both. If you, if you don't have sustainability as part of your resilience thinking, then you don't really have kind of the yardstick of thinking about what, what needs to happen. You don't necessarily have the goals of where we ultimately want to get to. Right. Sustainability is and really I, important for focusing our ideas on that. And we're going to take a quick commercial break because there's one more very important foundation for community resilience that I want you to discuss. But we've got to take a quick commercial break and then we'll discuss that when we come back. Don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Uh, if you're just tuning in, let me catch you up on our conversation today. We're talking with Daniel Lurch, and he is with the Post Carbon Institute, and he was the editor of a new publication um, that I highly recommend. It's the Community Resilience Reader. And before we went to break, we were talking about the six foundations of, of community resilience that are essential uh, that the that the reader outlines. And uh, the first five that we've talked about were people, systems thinking, adaptability, 
transformability and sustainability. There's a sixth foundation, Daniel. Talk to us about that sixth foundation. The sixth foundation is in some ways, it's going to be my favorite. Uh, we decided, was when we were putting this concept together back in 2015, we, we had a kind of a small committee of uh, thinkers, including Richard Heinberg, and um, it was working with those first five foundations that you just mentioned. We felt we had something really solid, but it was it was it was missing some heart to it. Mm-hmm. It was missing something to bring it back full circle. And um, uh, my friend, our, our colleague, I think it was Ken White, who he's now the executive director of a great organization called Junior State America. Um, he he's the one that kind of put together this idea. Well, maybe it's about courage. Maybe it's about just recognizing that doing this work at the local level is really hard. Um, it's not an easy thing to, like, if you're really going to go through the foundations, as we talked about, you know, working with people in your community, thinking about um, the crises facing uh, us at the global, national, and local levels, thinking about the unthinkable, what happens when there's massive disruption, what are the things that could really threaten the existence of a community. These are really challenging things. Um, They're emotionally challenging, so it requires courage. Mm-hmm. So we decided to make that the uh, the final foundation, uh, both to kind of remind us that it's you know it's okay to for these things to be hard, for these things to be challenging, and to kind of prepare us all for the realities of this work. Um, and in well, some ways, it, it, I like that it brings it back full circle to the first foundation, people, because in some ways the hardest part, uh, the most courageous, the thing that requires courage is you know actually sitting down at the table and, and talking with your neighbors, uh, some of whom agree with you, some of whom don't. Mm-hmm. And be will be willing to take some flack. I mean, and and yeah. that's one of the challenges that I know a lot of our listeners face. They have a difficult time helping their friends and neighbors understand some of the concepts that are included in the community resilience reader. Um, and one of those concepts is that we're pushing far past the Earth's capacity to provide the resources upon which we depend for our current state of living. Um, Help us understand the environmental crisis in such a way that we can talk about it to everyday people and and, and help it make sense to them. If they're unfamiliar with the concepts that a lot of our listeners read about and think about every day. Yeah, it's it's an excellent question. It's one that I think the environmental community has struggled with for for probably most of its existence, you know, certainly for, for at least the last uh, 30 years. Um, I, I, I trace my own environmental thinking back to, you know, when I was getting out of high school in the early 90s, uh, back when that, that iconic little book, 50 Simple Things You Can Do to Save the Earth, was mm-hmm. out, and there was sustainability had just entered the, the public vocabulary, and there was just this, I think, this very common sense that, okay, everyone kind of understands now what we were saying back in the 60s. We can finally work on this stuff and we can actually take hands-on uh, action, even with our own households, even recycling my newspapers or recycling my, my, my soda can makes a difference, right? It was a very heady time in some ways. Um, and that, that's changed, of course, I think, as the decades have gone by. Um, Oh, I think that was my toddler just picked up the phone on the other side. So uh, no worries. We we embrace all Go Green Radio <laughs> listeners and and uh, contributors. It's perfect. Yeah. So I think you know, and if you think back to the '80s and the '90s, you know, it was everyone. We were all talking. We were talking about the rainforests and the polar bears and the whales. It was you know, it was all out there. And then over the decades, I've a lot of people tuned out, and um, you know, certainly the last. 
15, probably the last 20 years or so, I mean, at first I tend to think of this as kind of happened towards the end of the Clinton and Gore era when um, things were, you know, the economy was booming and kind of happy days were here again and people started getting, uh, not thinking so much about the doom and gloom. And I think there's starting to be this sense that, oh, well, you know, we've either we've fixed those things or technology is going to fix them or they were overblown. You know, how many times have you heard, you know, people say, oh, you know, limits to growth, we heard about that in the 60s and it's been disproven and all that sort of thing. Right. It, which it hasn't, by the way. The, what, the Wall Street Journal actually, uh, just I think about seven years ago, um, mentioned quite uh, prominently in, in one of their articles that limits to growth had been, had been borne out, that famous study from the 60s. But, you know, right. who reads the Wall Street Journal? So I think to get to your question, how do you actually get this peop- get these ideas across to people? I think to me, it's not that people don't know what's going on. I think they do know the information. They just don't necessarily believe it, or they don't they don't think that it's actually a problem. Or like I mentioned, they think that technology is going to save it, probably because that's what they've been told. Um, mm-hmm. An anecdote I, I often use, and I use it in the book, um, is from I think earlier in this decade, when uh, in the climate change debate. And the then CEO later uh, of Exxon, and then later our, our hapless Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, very famously said in a speech that, you know, climate change is it might it might bring these uh, changes in water resources and crop changes, but these are technical problems that have technical solutions, you know, and that's that's what mm-hmm. American society is all about. We, we find solutions, we find technical solutions, and I think a lot of people believe that. So I think to get people beyond that. You've got to you, you got to break through that curtain, in a way, and get them realizing that well, you know, despite everything you've heard, things have not gotten better. And what, one mm-hmm. way I think about doing this is to kind of refer back to those things that everyone got excited about in the 80s and 90s. You know, you can tell your your uncle Joe, hey, remember we were all worried about the rainforests? Well, you know, they're half of them are gone now, or whatever the, mm-hmm. the statistic is. You know, that that has not changed. Exxon has not given us a technical solution for saving the rainforest. Right. And, exactly. You know, the the coral reefs are bleaching. We haven't saved the coral reefs, and you know, all those things. Or, or another way to do it is perhaps even more useful is to look at localized examples. You know, Houston had this big flood in the last, uh, I think, within the last nine months. I forget exactly when it was. You know, why did, why did that happen? Well, climate change, yes, but also because, you know, they've developed, every, uh, they tore down a lot of trees and developed all throughout their floodplain. You know, mm-hmm. we're still making these stupid decisions about how to use our, our environmental resources. Or the wild, mm-hmm. or if you're in the West, you talk about wildfires because everyone, that impacts everyone. Or if here in the East, where I'm in right now in New Jersey, you talk about shifting climate zones. Everyone recognizes that, oh, it's, it's a lot hotter in the summer now. We've got these invasive ticks and other creatures that weren't here 15 years ago. So anything to do, anything that makes it, that refers back to either their own memory or their own personal experience, I, I think, uh, is, is, is the way to get people thinking about these things, much more so than just, you know, telling them the latest statistics, because that just, that goes in one ear and out the other. It certainly does. And I think you're exactly right. And similarly, you know, when we talk about being in an energy crisis, that was something that people could accept, I think, in the 70s when there were long gas lines. I remember being a little kid sweating to death in the back of the car while we were waiting in a gas line. And everybody was like, yeah, there's an energy crisis. But right now, we're able to plug everything in from our coffee pots to our cars every day. And we rarely experience power outages unless there's a storm. So how do we convince our community members and our neighbors that we're in the midst of an energy crisis that needs to be addressed? Yeah. 
It's actually, it's kind of what you're describing is a, a great example of the difference between resilience and sustainability, believe it or not, because resilience, so this is our energy system now is extremely resilient. Uh, the current energy system. Uh, so absolutely, you know, there's disruptions happen every day all over the world in the fossil fuel um, extraction, refining, and distribution system. But the system is so resilient that it, it's very, now it, it's, 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 it's very seldom that you have such a big change that you actually notice it at the pump. I mean, you know, and it's, people are used to, I think the news gets all worked up if, you know, the price of gas goes up, you know, 10 cents. But, mm-hmm. you know, that's still relatively small changes compared to, yeah, as you said, what was happening back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. It's on a percentage basis. So, yeah, you're not going to see, the, and your neighbors aren't going to see the energy crisis at the pump. Um, I think one way that I've, uh, I, I've thought about, and we, the way that we communicate this more and more at Post Carbon, <coughs> is thinking of it in terms, not so much in terms of the end of cheap oil or peak oil, as we used to say. Peak oil is still a thing. It's still real. It hasn't gone away. It's just, it's, it, as a messaging concept, it's, it's kind of uh, lost its efficacy. Uh, mm-hmm. Because everyone thinks they know now what peak oil. It's kind of like limits to growth. Everyone thinks it's been debunked. It hasn't, but you know you just don't use that term anymore because it doesn't get you anywhere. So we, instead, we talk about uh, and others talk about extreme energy, and you know we talk about kind of what I mentioned earlier in our conversation about how you know we used to get oil, you know, drill a couple hundred feet down in the plains of Texas, and then you know ten years ago we had to drill a couple thousand feet down into the Gulf of Mexico and a few hundred feet of uh, choppy water, and you know now, and that and that's deep water horizon there. And now we're you know drilling in pristine farmland, uh, you know to do fracking for for gas and oil, and we're drilling in the backyards of national monuments. You know, so that's you, you just kind of see if you just take a, a minute to look at it that you know it's we're we're going to greater and greater lengths to get at this at these resources that we're so dependent on, and that that you would you would think people would be worried about that. Yeah, mm-hmm. we actually are risking uh, our, our groundwater. We actually are you know, tearing apart habitat and tearing apart communities in some ways and certainly risking you know, the Gulf Coast and, and hopefully not, but possibly the Atlantic and Pacific coasts. So it's, 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 it's always fascinating to me the, the mental models that, that we grew up with that we got used to for decades and how we have to change those mental models to understand what's actually in front of us. And we got so used to thinking of you know, the, the statistics in the nightly news or the, the price of the pump as the indicator, and that just, that just doesn't work anymore. But it's a, it's a process to educate people for, for what, what they should look at. Well, and I, I kind of use a, a far less intellectual term than you guys use when you talk about extreme energy. I say we've gone from cheap to deep, and that in and of itself, mm-hmm. you know, alarms me because, you know, when you have to go deep, you're going to be using a lot more resources. It's going to be a lot more dangerous. I know that. My my father was a coal miner. And when you go deep into the earth, there's all kinds of things that can happen to the workers, um, to the, you know, to the workspace. Um, so, yeah, I mean, th- this is this is something that we need to start talking about. Just the very fact of that we're getting our energy from more extreme or deeper sources should be a really big red flag that the energy we depend upon isn't easy to get to anymore. And there are ramifications of that. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have much more to talk about with Daniel Lurch and the community resilience reader. So don't go away folks. There's more go green radio right after this.
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. I'm so glad that you could all join us. If you want to send me a tweet, tell me what you think of the show. It's at Jill Buck, and I'd love to hear what you have to say. Um, Our guest today, in case you're just joining us, is Daniel Lurch with the Post Carbon Institute, and we're talking about one of their new publications, The Community Resilience Reader. And you can get a hold of this in a couple of different ways. If you go to postcarbon.org, you can buy the publication or you can create an account and and actually read the Community Resilience Reader on your computer. It's free if you do it that way. So be sure to go to postcarbon.org and check out the Community Resilience Reader. Daniel, I would love for you to spend a few moments talking to us about how the built environment in our local communities plays a significant role in whether or not our cities are resilient. Absolutely. And let me say that, so the one thing I forgot to mention earlier on is that the way the, the book is structured, we've got the three parts. The first part is talking about the crises, which we talked about earlier, the E4 crises. The second part is about tools, um, tools like systems literacy, sustainability science, resilience science. And then part three is about these specific issues within communities, one of which is the built environment. But there's also a, a lot of other issues in there that I think your, your listeners will be very uh, interested to, to read about. We have chapters in there about uh, food and water and streets, education, which is a really important one. And then uh, you mentioned earlier the, that the, the book is available online. On the online version, we actually have a, a special chapter. It's not available in the print version. Uh, it's on governance, and it's probably one of the most important issues, especially these days. Uh, so I definitely encourage people to, to take a look at that and see you know, what, if we're going to be making our 
communities more resilient in the face of the, all the different environmental, energy, economic, and equity crises that we face, how do we, how do we begin to work at the local level? And uh, what do we do in terms of, of how we govern ourselves is, is a very important step in that. So you had asked about the, the role of the built environment. This one's a personal one. I, I actually, I'm the one who wrote that chapter in the book, partly because it's, my background is in city planning, and it's long been a, an interest of mine. Um, I was living in Portland for the last 20 years before some very recent changes, and when I was in Portland, <coughs> I was a co-director of a group called the City Repair Project, um, and what we did was we tried to get local people, neighbors thinking about their built environment as, as something that was important for sustainability. Um, you know, how are we, what kind of buildings are we actually building? Uh, what kind of public space do we have? What kind of options do we have for moving around the community? Um, we felt these were things that really needed to be injected into the sustainability conversation back when the sustainability conversation tended to be focused on, on very simple things like changing your light bulbs and, and maybe mm-hmm. buying a, a hybrid car. So, you know, when it, when it comes to resilience, uh, like we're talking about and like the book talks about, uh, there, there are a lot of different ways in which the built environment plays a role. And I should say, when, when we talk about the, that term, the built environment, that, that's simply kind of a catch-all for all the structures, all the so, you know, buildings, but also all the infrastructure, streets, mm-hmm. sewer lines, power lines, all, the, all those sorts of things. Uh, all the things that, the, the physical things that you, in, that you envision when you, when you think about a community. Um, in sustainability conversations, uh, you know, for a long time, the last 20 years, we would talk about things like transit-oriented development, for example. You know, if we're going to mm-hmm. expand our community, if we're going to build new housing, it's important to build it around, say, a transit station because, you know, that, that gives us, that, that means we're going to be, people don't have to drive in their cars uh, and we're going to be consuming less energy and that sort of thing, all, all the great sustainability um, advantages of that. From the resilience perspective, resilience kind of, Takes you know sees the same things, but also kind of adds the the view that you know the reason why that's important. Why is it important to have um, access to to public transit, for example, as part of a community? I mean, yes, it's the energy efficiency. Yes, it's getting people out of their cars. But but that in itself is important because people need options. Um, you need options to have adaptability to be able to uh, deal with different conditions within a system. And when it comes to transportation. You know, a a community where you have the option of either, you know, walk in, say, say just to meet your basic needs, you need to go to the grocery store and buy your quart of milk and your loaf of bread. Um, you know, if you have multiple options, including walking, bicycling, hopping on a bus, hopping on a streetcar, or driving, that's a much more resilient system than, say, for example, where I'm sitting right now in various suburban, western, semi-rural New Jersey, where the nearest uh, quart of milk is 15 miles down the road, down a wow. highway, is very wow. suburbanized. So that's that's a very non-resilient system. Mm-hmm. So you know that's that's probably a pretty ex- extreme example, but you can start to apply that to any aspect of the built environment you can imagine. Um, power and e- energy is is a great one. Um, when we were working. Some years ago, when I was working some years ago with people in Portland, Oregon, who were doing a peak oil task force, um, one thing they looked at for kind of assessing, you know, where things were at, was they wanted to figure out, okay, well, where, where do we, we're very dependent on fossil fuels here, of course, for, for cars and our trucks. How do we actually get that, those, those fuels? How do they, literally, how do they arrive at 
in Portland for us to use. And they found that Portland was actually kind of at the end of the, the, the supply chain mm-hmm. in some ways, um, which, you know, physically, which meant that if there was some sort of disruption that, you know, Portland was likely to be affected first, it was likely to have the highest prices. And so that this, and this was a government task force that was doing this. So we realized right away, oh, wow, that's actually extremely uh, important vulnerability that, you know, say mm-hmm. Houston will, uh, won't be facing. Uh, therefore, that's, that has a lot to do, and we didn't talk about these terms, but that's a big, that has a big consideration for the resilience of this community, because if, if something happens with that, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're in deep water, as it right. were. So all these considerations about the built environment, um, whether it's about transportation or walkability or um, how buildings can handle disruptions like earthquakes and, 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 um, and hurricanes and whatnot, they all kind of come together. And I, I can't really get into too much in the few minutes that we have left, but certainly the, um, the, the chapter in the book uh, gets all into it in great detail. Mm-hmm. It does. And I, I think, you know, one of the things that is so um, helpful, I think, with the Community Resilience Reader is how it, it kind of breaks these issues down. And really, the tools section is fantastic because it helps take these larger-than-life issues and gives the reader some some solid tips for how to address these issues at the community level. And I know that a lot of our listeners are are thinking, where do we start? How do we, how do we even begin? And if you could spend just a minute giving them some advice, that would be great. Absolutely. And boy, there are so many ways to start. Um, I probably the easiest and probably one of the most, well, maybe not the easiest because this gets to that Courage Foundation, but mm-hmm. I would say one of the most important is to get to know your neighbors. Um, yeah. And that is not an easy thing to do, especially in, in many communities, especially communities that are more sprawled out. Um, but it is a core of resilience that if, if that, uh, that you have what's called social capital, that you have these connections uh, with the people that, who are who are around you, the people who share your your air and your water, as it were. Um, and there's, you know, I think especially in American culture, we we tend to discount those local relationships, um, but but they're important. I mean, when disruption happens, those are the people that you're working with. When political decisions come up, those are the people that you're working with. Uh, not all not all of our social interactions uh, are can, can be can can transpire through Amazon.com. Um, <laughs> so that's <laughs> that's kind of like the the quick forty five second answer. The fifteen second uh, r- remainder of that is educate yourself. Get connected with other people online. Uh, certainly, please go to postcarbon.org, our website, and see what we have to offer. We've got plenty of publications. We also have an online course called Think Resilience. It's only twenty dollars. It's a four hour four hours worth of videos of Richard Heinberg delivering kind of little mini mini lectures and also some suggested readings. We've had about a thousand people take it so far. Incredible That's so feedback awesome. on it. And I enjoy so, Richard. Yeah. He's been on Go Green Radio many times. Daniel, this has been a great conversation. We've got to have you back for the for part two. I want to thank Absolutely. you for joining us. I want to thank you for the community resilience reader and thank you to all our all of our listeners who joined us today. We're gonna to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. To 
Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.